This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Rosa Gonzalez-Goring, standing in for Brian Thompson as your guest presenter for this month's edition. In this episode, we say goodbye to a year full of uncertainty and changes, but also adaptation, innovation and improvement. The COVID-19 crisis has been a challenge for all of us, but has also taught us some important lessons for the coming year. EFAD's Associate Vice President Donald Brown will give us the latest on EFAD's response to the pandemic in terms of operations, what we've learned and its expected impact in 2021. We'll be talking about disability inclusion with EFAD's Stephen Jonker and also about gender-based violence with EFAD's Endaya Belchica. Next up, we'll hear from the Slow Food Foundation about the Terra Madre 2020 event dedicated to food, the environment, agriculture and food politics. Experts on agroecology Miguel Altieri and Salvatore Ceccarelli will be joining us to talk about the importance of biodiversity and our food systems. And we also have a special piece on IFAD's Goodwill Ambassadors Sabrina and Idris Elba, featured on the BBC podcast What Planet Are We On? Finally, we find out how small-scale farmers are bottom of the heap for getting climate finance. Our reporter, Freddie Harvey-Williams, will tell us about a new report released by the Climate Policy Initiative in partnership with EFAD. Remember, we want to hear from you what you think about our stories and who you want us to be talking to, so please get in touch with us at podcasts at efad.org. Please subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. The COVID-19 situation is still evolving globally. We're seeing a second wave coming through much more quickly and on a far bigger scale than we expected in many of the countries where EFED's target groups are located, particularly in Latin America. This crisis has raised significant issues. What was a health crisis is now evolving into a livelihood and food security crisis. I spoke to Associate Vice President at EFED, Donald Brown, about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and what's expected in the coming months as we head into 2021. So we're seeing in many of the countries that farmers are, are missing the planting season with the rains, that they don't have enough labour to uh, do the planting or, ne- on, or access to seeds and credit to buy them. So what was a health crisis is becoming a, a wider food crisis. But at the same time, as people, uh, many, many of the jobs in the rural economy are informal or are dependent on remittances from family in urban areas or in other countries. We've seen a 20% drop in remittances globally, but also many, many family members have lost their jobs and have returned to the villages. So we're also seeing a significant impact just on wages and on families, with families even having to skip meals and going hungry. And this will continue. This is not going to disappear overnight. We fully expect this situation to evolve and continue into 2021, and we need to be prepared for that and ensure we're supporting not only the health impact, but also the livelihood impact, particularly of the most vulnerable and the poorest EFAD's target group. So we have three main strands of response. We are repurposing funding within existing projects and we've repurposed or are nearly repurposing about $200 million of existing finance in over 50 countries. But we also launched the Rural Poor Stimulus Facility as a direct response for COVID. 
And I'm pleased to say in that context, EFAD put in 40 million of its own seed money. That money has all now been allocated and is being dispersed to over 50 projects in over 50 countries. But at the same time, we've raised about $45 million through the generosity of a number of donors, such as Canada, Switzerland, Germany, Sweden, and the Netherlands. And we are in the process now of allocating that 45 million of additional funding to the same countries, either as additional funding for the original project so we can scale them up, or in new areas which have come to light over the last few months. So I'm pleased to see that that's progressing well, and we expect to be dispersing by January this second tranche of 45 million, and we will continue to try and raise additional funds because the needs are enormous for our poor beneficiaries. That was EFAD's Donald Brown. You can find out the latest relating to COVID-19 and EFAD's work at efad.org forward slash COVID-19. And next, we'll be talking about the importance of disability inclusion. Despite being the world's largest minority, persons with disabilities are often forgotten in terms of development. They currently number 1 billion people or 15% of the world's population and 80% live in developing countries and are more likely to live in poverty. In the 2030 Agenda, the Sustainable Development Goals highlight the need for inclusion of persons with disability because they've been identified as one of the groups that are most likely to be left behind. Today, we'll be talking about the need to change the mindset with EFAD Stephen Jonker. Persons with disabilities face significant challenges to their full participation in society and economy. So these include negative attitudes, stigma, discrimination, lack of accessibility in physical and virtual environments. Persons with disabilities are also more likely to, to live in poverty. They, data also shows that they're more likely not to always have food. And in rural areas, persons with disabilities tend to face even more challenges than their counterparts in urban areas. Um, so they um, are less likely to attend school, they're less likely to be employed, less likely to be attended by a skilled health worker, and less likely to own a mobile phone. And they're also often left out or left behind in rural development interventions. So in general, Persons with disabilities make up a significant proportion of the population in rural communities, and they are uh, most likely to be amongst the poorest and most vulnerable groups in rural areas. So with IFAD focusing on the poorest in rural areas, persons with disabilities would definitely qualify as being one of IFAD's target group. So we do have uh, a number of IFAD-supported projects that have been successful in including persons with disabilities in rural development projects. And they have been supported, among others, in setting up their own businesses um, along various stages of agriculture value chains. And as a result, these persons with disabilities are now able to sustain themselves and also their families and, and contribute to local economic development. Um, for example, in um, Senegal, where we've trained uh, 300 members of organizations of persons with disabilities in vocational and business skills, um, where uh, several have set up, for example, workshops for making and repairing agricultural tools. And they're also, they also employ other people in Senegal, also supported persons with disabilities to set up their poultry farming businesses. And with the profit they make, they, they can sustain themselves and their families. But given that persons with disabilities clearly fall within IFAD's target group, um, we would expect to see more projects working with them 
And one reason why not more projects um, target persons with disabilities is the perception that exists regarding persons with disabilities. So they are often seen more as objects of charity or medical treatment and social protection and not as subjects uh, who are capable of uh, exercising their rights, making their own decisions and being actually active members of society and, and the economy. The COVID-19 pandemic is impacting societies at their very core and deepening pre-existing inequalities. So even under normal circumstances, persons with disabilities are already less likely to access uh, education, healthcare, and livelihoods or participate and be included in the community. The pandemic is intensifying these inequalities and, and also producing new threats. So persons with disabilities are disproportionately affected by health, social, and economic impacts of COVID-19. At IFAD, what we're doing is, in our COVID uh, response, is giving priority to those who are disproportionately impacted. A number of measures that we're taking is, for example, repurposing existing projects to the COVID-19 context. And there, we make sure that we uh, also target persons with disabilities. For example, in Tunisia, where extra funds were given to the National Social Protection Program, and that's uh, specifically targeted persons with disabilities and their households. We also have our rapid response rural poor stimulus facility, where priority is given to support rural people that are at the highest risk of falling back into poverty. And that includes also persons with disabilities. So a number of projects that have been funded through this facility also target persons with disabilities. And we always do that by ensuring that persons with disabilities' voices are thoroughly reflected, especially through engagement with organizations of persons with disabilities. That was Ifad Stephen Jonker, and this is Farms Food Future. Physical, sexual, economic and psychological violence against women and girls has increased during the COVID-19 pandemic. To talk about the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence, an international campaign that's taken place each year since 1991, and the work IFAD is doing to address this problem, we have Endaya Belchica joining us today. The campaign starts on the 25th of November, the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, and ends on the 10th of December, Human Rights Day indicating that violence against women is the most pervasive breach of human rights worldwide. Endaya tells us about solutions we must put into action and the impact of masculinity and traditional gender roles on society. This campaign is a call to action for individuals, institutions and organizations around the world to prevent and eliminate gender-based violence. As we usually do um, every year, so this year, IFAD, in collaboration with the other two UN-based agencies, will host a series of events during the 16-day campaign. COVID-19-related measures, such as quarantine measures, have created uh, psychological, social, and economic stressors. And those have, unfortunately, intensified the risk of violence against women and girls because of the higher levels of vulnerability. And this year's campaign has four specific asks to actually mitigate the risk of gender-based violence. Fund, respond, prevent, and collect. And the fund is really under the COVID-19 to consider the services related to prevention and those supporting the survivors of gender-based violence as essential because we know that during COVID-19 only essential services are funded. And the next thing to do is also to continue to fund organizations working at the nexus between COVID-19 and gender-based violence. 
The second ask, which is respond, is to have explicit measures so that services for survivors of GBVs are maintained as essential during COVID-19. These would include services to ensure that there is adequate criminal justice response. And if these are not existent, then measures should be adopted and new services should be provided. The third one, prevent, is to first declare national zero tolerance for GBVs with some concrete actions in place. And then, of course, given that we are all housebound now, to launch social mobilization campaigns to bring to the attention the risk of gender-based violence during this period. And of course, doing so, we would need to pay close attention to the social norms. And then lastly, collect refers to collect the data for improving gender-based services as well as programs with focusing on the survivors as well as some ethical safety standards. The conversation on gender-based violence has evolved over time. But gender-based violence is commonly used to underscore the inequalities between men and women with men holding power and privileges. So to achieve gender justice, men and boys need to be part of the solution as allies for gender equality and women's empowerment, as well as women's rights. So from that perspective, gender equality is only possible if we are all working together and if men and boys are engaged. So now stepping back a little, when we refer to masculinity or masculinist norms, these often include a set of rigid and constraining standards that place a lot of pressure on men and boys to act a certain way. Confronting these preconceived ideas with healthier alternative, using sensitization campaigns, enlisting community and religious leaders, and building the skills of men and boys would be beneficial for both men and women. And of course, the expected change in behavior is a learning process, and so it will take time. But we should get started. Gender-based violence is widespread and tend to be exacerbated by poverty, food insecurity, and fragility. So in addition to its policy, IFAD addressed those concerns and invests in the promotion of economic empowerment for both men and women to find rural poverty in diverse contexts, including fragile contexts. And this, in addition to the policies and the procedure, is another important element of IFAD's strategy to combat gender-based violence. In funding these programs, situation analysis are conducted to understand the existing social norms and root causes of inequality between men and women in all of the various countries. Once these are understood, specific activities such as training, sensitization campaigns, as well as enlisting community leaders and religious leaders as well are tailored to the context and implemented. Additionally, some specific participatory approaches, such as household methodology, are also used to challenge biased social norms. That was Ifat and Nayabelchika. This is Farms Food Future. Slow Food is a global network of local communities actively engaging in every corner of the world to ensure that everyone has access to good, clean and fair food. This global network defends and promotes food biodiversity while influencing the private and public sectors to come together in a joint action to change the food system. This ensures production of quality food using sustainable raw materials without damaging the environment and protecting consumer health, while producers get a fair price for their products. Slow Food stresses the importance of educating through food to get people to better understand the world we live in. I spoke to Luis Francisco Prieto, Indigenous Peoples and Afro-Descendant Focal Point for Slow Food. He told me about the Terra Madre 2020 event. 
Since 2004, Terra Madre has been a unique event in which thousands of food activists, farmers, pastoralists, fisher folks, food producers, academia, journalists, international organizations such as IFAD, NGOs, but also consumers, meet and gather to celebrate the joy of food biodiversity, but also to debate about the future of the food system. Specifically, this Terra Madre edition will be the largest of all. It will last six months from October to April 2021 with hundreds of online events, but also offline events where possible by, by COVID, of course, in which food communities will reflect and act on the links between our food, our planet, and our future. To address this issue, we want to think about food according to a new geography, putting political borders into the background and highlighting more the primacy of the land and ecosystem, so plains, mountains, seas, lakes, and so on. Humanities facing threats as climate change and its effects, but also as COVID-19 has shown the world, problems are not country-based and solutions are not individual solutions. Indeed, solutions to these problems are the communities with a bottom-up approach. Communities themselves in these times of COVID-19 have mobilized autonomously and put hundreds of projects into action to overcome the difficulties of physical distancing, to support small-scale food producers and local economies to protect the more vulnerable people. IFAD and Slow Food have been working since 2017 on the project empowering Indigenous youth and their communities to defend and promote their food heritage. Their goal is to improve lives by protecting and promoting food heritage and traditional practices that guarantee sustainability and resilience. This project works with 500 Indigenous producers and 10,000 Indigenous youth. Luis Francisco told me about the results of the joint effort between IFAD and Slow Food through this IFAD grant. This has been a three-year grant, so there are some key results, uh, but I would like to focus on some of them. I think the most important one is the strengthening of an indigenous people's network, which is now led by an advisory board composed by a majority of women, and in which hundreds of communities are now networking to protect their food heritage. Indigenous leaders are now in contact one with another, exchanging their knowledge and enjoying the fact of getting together with other people who experience the same situation. Furthermore, through workshops and eight international events, the capacities of more than 300 youth were strengthened. These youth are future food leaders. In fact, they exchange knowledge and skills with each other. They had acquired new tools for protecting and promoting their food heritage and are more aware of these topics. Many of them are actively participating in spaces for policy debates at the regional and international level, contributing to their personal empowerment. Another two key results of this grant, I think, is um, that nine innovative productive projects for food at risk of extinction in Latin America and Africa were created and strengthened, in which indigenous youth have an active role. And the last one is that a participatory guarantee system for 
and by indigenous communities was pilot to ensure products quality, to increase market access and also producers' income, of course. So how would you say slow food has adapted to the times of COVID-19? So the answer is the centrality of food. In this time of crisis, food has been more central than ever. Many people have rediscovered how important it is for our physical and spiritual well-being. They started cooking again or even to grow their own food or have closer links with food producers uh, around them or in their area. Others have struggled to find food or suffer a lack of access to quality food. And they have understood how strong the links that we form around food can be. So the slow food movement put in place thousands of actions and resources to deal with this situation. The Global Report on Food Crisis published by the UN in April warns that the COVID crisis will have a dramatic impact and is having a dramatic impact on vulnerable populations' access to food and income, which will push more than a quarter of a billion to the brink of starvation. So this pandemic is not just a health crisis, but a food crisis. And again, at the center of the solution for the slow food movement is the communities and its network. That was Luis Francisco Pieto from Slow Food. Now to learn more about the Terra Madre 2020 event, we'll be hearing from Darino Lasco, Indigenous Terra Madre Advisory Board member for Latin America and the Caribbean. Dali comes from the Nahua peoples of Tlaola in Puebla, Mexico. She's an active member of Slow Food for the defense and promotion of native seeds, food, territories and indigenous biodiversity. Dali also trains women, youth and children on rights, gender and interculturalism. I asked Dali about her contribution to Terra Madre's 13th edition, the project she's working on with Slow Food and the training she does. We are promoting local projects with young people from Latin America. The projects are wide-ranging and focus on the defense of seeds and territories, agroecological production and food security. We are also working with them and advising them on other issues, such as communal and family vegetable gardens, the promotion of their seed beds, creating seed banks, sustainable agroecological models. Well, there is a whole range of schemes, as well as the Slow Food Presidia projects. We are demonstrating how communities have the potential to develop strongholds that allow them to make a bigger change in their community. We will be working from October to December on a training process with young people, focusing on a range of issues concerning our network, with an emphasis on raising awareness about the importance of protecting biodiversity and the various links that there are concerning indigenous peoples' rights and the participants. We will also teach them a little bit more about the tools Slow Food has at its disposal to protect biodiversity and how these projects can be taken to their territories or implemented within their communities. Example of these are the Ark of Taste, the Slow Food Presidia, Earth Markets, etc. We will also hold consultation meetings with network members to prepare for the Terra Madre Closing Congress. Engagement in these political dialogues is a way to start working on how we can best influence the international movement.
Dali told me about the results of some of the projects Slow Food develops that have empowered women and youth in indigenous communities. The projects have resulted in some beautiful stories. For example, exchange of knowledge between two young indigenous girls, one from Ecuador and the other from Bolivia. It was their own initiative, and they made videos where they shared their recipes with certain foods and seeds. They agreed on the content, made their broadcasts, etc. Other colleagues have been invited to participate as panelists and experts at international agroecological meetings. They are making a name for themselves and for the network because now they feel supported. They feel a part of this international network, and when they are in those spaces, they say with great pride, I am a member of the Slow Food International Terra Madre Indigenous Network. One of the things we find most satisfying is that now young people want to continue working in their territories, protecting their ways of life, and above all, they feel a great commitment to defending biodiversity. And when we listen to them, when they say that now they feel stronger and better supported, it gives us confidence in the more human approach we have when accompanying them in this process. But we know that we have to continue working hard so these young people grow up to be great future leaders. That was Dani Nolasco calling in from Mexico. Another important member from the ITM advisory board we have joining us today is Margaret Tunda, representative for East Africa. Margaret is a member of the Maasai people and plays a key role in advocating for the preservation of positive cultural practices in her community. She believes communities should be supported to ensure that their rights to land and natural resources are protected and their voices heard. I asked Margaret about Slow Food's contribution towards ensuring food security and her collaboration with the network regarding indigenous peoples. Food security is not about quantity, but the quality of food. Slow Food provides a platform where issues concerning food, the food system, are discussed. Like, for example, the Terra Madre is an opportunity to meet uh, like-minded uh, individuals who are passionate about uh, food and nutrition. And uh, we also get the opportunity to meet organizations which are advocating for good, clean, and fair food. And therefore, this leads to promotion of biodiversity, food exchange, and these opportunities are very powerful opportunities for people who are passionate about nutrition and good food. Therefore, I would say, that Slow Food International as a network has really advocated for food security in different ways. For example, in Africa, you know, we have uh, the 10,000 gardens. We have gardens all over the in different countries that are um, growing organic foods. And uh, we also have the ITM network where I'm actively involved, where we target projects that are targeting IPs or indigenous peoples promoting locally grown foods and uh, breeds. For example, here in Kenya, we have two presidiums, the presidium of the Ogiek uh, beekeepers and also the Red Maasai sheep presidium where I'm also actively involved. Initially, the government had introduced exotic breeds to farmers in my community. 
and uh, the exotic breeds have uh, proved not sustainable. My environment, where I come from, is a semi-arid land. Uh, they require a lot of efforts, and this is this has really become expensive in the long run for my community. And because these exotic breeds become sickly, which leads to loss, especially during the long and dry seasons. While the local breed, that is the red Maasai sheep, is resistant to harsh weather conditions and disease resistance. This project is important because uh, it leads to restoration, in this case, the red Maasai sheep. And uh, this sheep is very important to our community as uh, the Maasai household because it represents and carry our identity, given that it carries our name as the Maasai. Then I would also say that um, the projects are very important because uh, they lead to restoration, preservation, which is a great deal in uh, promotion of cultural heritage and identity of the indigenous people. It is also important because uh, it focuses on food that is fair and locally produced. We've had uh, our community attending events, trade fairs, seed and food fairs, a public event that was held uh, last year for shaping the future of food in Africa. And uh, our community was also participating in this and other indigenous communities uh, within the country and uh, beyond our borders from other countries in Africa. These events are very informative and very rich because uh, people get to interact and learn from one another. There's exchange of ideas. You also learn that IPs are facing the same challenges in different parts. Even though you don't live in the same place, the challenges are kind of similar. Slow Food provides a platform which gives the indigenous a voice to wear out their issues. That was Margaret Tunda joining us today from Kenya. Thank you to Luis Francisco Dali and Margaret from Slow Food. You are listening to Farms Food Future. Speaking of agroecology, we couldn't miss the opportunity to talk to experts Miguel Altieri and Salvatore Cecarelli, mentioned in Farms Food Future edition 13 by Italian farmer Marco Micheroni. Miguel Altieri is a professor of agroecology and urban agriculture at the University of Berkeley. He's done research in California and Latin America, working closely with farmers to design productive, biodiverse and resilient farming systems. Miguel is now in rural Colombia setting up his own farm and tells us about how implementing the principles of agroecology is appropriate to smallholder farmers. Well, after I retired from the University of California, my wife, who is still a professor at Berkeley, and we bought a farm here in Colombia. My wife is from Colombia. And um, we decided to set up what we call an agroecological lighthouse, which is like a demonstration farm where we apply the principles of agroecology to put this farm at the service of the education and capacity building of the local farmers here in this area, small farmers and their children, and especially young people that are returning to the rural areas because now due to COVID-19, there has been a massive unemployment. So many of the rural young people that migrated years ago to work in the cities are coming back. Small farmers, which only occupy about 30% of the agricultural land in the world, produce about 50 to 70% of the food we eat, depending on the country. Agroecology is particularly applicable or compatible with the small farmer's rationale 
first because it's socially activating. It, it, it requires the participation of the community for community activities, for collective action. It promotes the autonomy of farmers by cutting the cost of production, by not depending on external inputs, but rather depending on the internal resources of the farm or the region to manage their systems. And it's also ecologically sound because it builds upon what already far small farmers have instead of coming and wiping out the systems and putting some new varieties and in under monoculture. The other thing is that agroecology is in the hands now of the social movements, such as Via Campesina, which is the largest peasant movement in the world, and is a, is a transformative science that will make, will make them more autonomous and at the same time overcome the crisis that are facing. So what would you say you've learned from indigenous peoples and smallholder farmers' use of land? Well, agroecology is a science that, uh, that is born out of a dialogue of wisdoms, we call it, because on the side uses the advances of scientific method, of the Western scientific method, <clears throat> like we, we use ecology, we use uh, soil science, entomology, plant pathology, social sciences, etc. But at the same time, we also build from the knowledge of small farmers who have been farming for thousands of years, especially here in Latin America, we have agriculture that have stood the test of time for 5,000 years. So um, we have studied many traditional systems and found that they have an ecological rationale that is very important to incorporate the principles that govern the resiliency of the sustainability of these systems. For example, the milpa. The milpa is a common system of corn and bean and squash inter intercropped used by Mesoamerican farmers all the way from Mexico to Central America, even here in Colombia. And the reason why the small farmers use this system is because it minimizes the risk. But then when you study the interactions that are going on between the corn and the beans and the squash, you find out that it's a perfect ecosystem that um, protects the crops against pests, um, it, it, it utilizes in a very efficient way the water, and at the same time, it's much more productive than monocultures. So agroecologists throughout the world have learned from small farmers many, many things that we, the, the basically what we, we do is we understand why those systems work, derive the principles, the ecological principles, and then apply them to design new systems that are going to be even more productive and resilient. Thank you to Professor Miguel Altieri. Next up, we hear from Professor of Agricultural Genetics at the University of Perugia, Salvatore Ceccarelli. He's collaborated with the International Centre for Agricultural Research in the Dry Areas, conducted training courses for researchers in different countries and published nearly 280 scientific papers. He told me about the main benefits of moving towards more organic and biodynamic agriculture how this food system can contribute to boosting the immune system and, as a result, help to protect against diseases like COVID-19. Uh, when we are uh, um, comparing organic and biodynamic on one side and conventional or industrial agriculture on the other side, uh, we put a lot of emphasis on the use of a different use of chemicals. But in fact, another fundamental difference is that one the organic and biodynamic is based on diversity, while one of the major connotations of industrial agriculture is um, uniformity and, and monoculture. 
And because biodiversity is our uh, more efficient weapon against uh, um, climatic changes, so smallholder farmers who do not have uh, other form of protection can uh, count on the biodiversity which is associated with organic and biodynamic agriculture to protect themselves against these uh, um, changes which will appear in a different way in different locations. There has been a feeling in the last 10 years that the industrial agriculture may not be the best way of doing agriculture in relation to maintaining in good shape the planet in which we live. But we were told we need to do that because otherwise we will not be able to feed the world. And this has been one of the criticisms towards biodynamic and organic agriculture. Today, one of the major problems is uh, overweight and obesity. So that actually the issue is not to produce more, but to produce more where we produce too little. Uh, There is an estimation uh, that we are producing an amount of food globally which corresponds to about, uh, if I remember correctly the figure, uh, about 3,000 calories per person per day. And we need only 2,300 calories to live uh, well. But the problem is that there is a part of the world where people are eating 4,000 calories per person per day, and so there is not enough uh, for the other. Now, one major danger is that we try to use this argument to convince the Africans and the Asian farmers to do the same sort of agriculture that we're doing in Europe and in America. This, of course, will have even more uh, bigger consequences on the, on the planet. There are two scientific papers. The report of Lancet, which is considered to be the best uh, medical scientific journal of 2008, in which the journal was warning that the climate change may change the way in which infectious diseases spread around the planet. And it happened. Then there is another paper which relates pandemics like COVID-19 to two aspects of the loss of biodiversity. One is the deforestation and the other is species extinction. Because these two phenomena, of course, will alter the relationship from different species so that this will facilitate the movement of viruses and other potential diseases. Another aspect which may eventually benefit agroecology in general in its application in organic and biodynamic agriculture is human health. Uh, There is a lot of evidence in medical journals that a large part of our natural resistance to diseases is associated with our immune system. And our immune system is related to the diversity and composition of our intestinal flora, the microbiota. One of the best ways to have sufficient protection uh, from diseases, not necessarily 100%, but is to have an extremely diversified diet, to eat a little bit of everything. 
But how can you do that if you are surrounded by an agriculture which is based on uniformity? You know that 60% of calories uh, coming from plants is actually coming from three crops, wheat, rice, and maize. When you go in a supermarket and you see all these packets and, and jars so with different colors, different names, uh, you think that there is a, an incre incredible diversity of food. Wrong. If you read carefully the label, there is always the same thing. It's either wheat, rice, or maize, or in different, in different combinations. So actually, we have a very monotonous diet. Um, uh, I'm sure that you have, have observed uh, that there is this great diversity of human responses to COVID-19 infection. Now, yes, there is a relationship with age, um, but I would like to see a careful study whether within the same class age, and I know that there, there have been people 90, uh, 90 years old uh, who recovered. Now, why they recovered and uh, other people of the same age, they die. Uh, could be that some of these differences were related to the... Um, food habit of these people and therefore to their strength of their immune system. That was Professor Salvatore Ceccarelli and this is Farms Food Future. Next up we have an extract from the BBC podcast What Planet Are We On? UN Goodwill Ambassadors for IFAD Idris and Sabrina Alba were featured by the programme presented by Liz Bonin. They talked about the work they do with IFAD and the challenges faced during the COVID-19 pandemic. Tell me a little bit about what inspired you and led you to, to support IFAD. I mean, it, interesting enough, we were working with climate um, programmes before we were introduced to IFAD. It just sits on the board of Conservation International. So we've always had a strong passion to kind of take care of the planet for the coming generations. I mean... We've just got married. I I want to have children one day and bring them into a world that I don't think will be destroyed in the coming years. And, you know, having that sense of responsibility on us, looking for programs where we can help Africa and knowing how much climate change affects the people there, EFAD is a really, really great uh, program that does both things. It takes care of the food systems, which we all know we need, but also does it in a way that's strategic to the climate. They can keep those systems going. Um, and I know you could probably speak to that as well, babe, but... Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's no shortage of voices, you know, talking about climate change and the green debate and so on, but there's not much visibility on, 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 on the people that have not much at all and still suffer um, climate change. And so IFAD um, certainly gets into the weeds, no pun intended, on, <laughs> on, on, you know, very specific groups of people in our world that have no visibility whatsoever. And that's where, you know, the likes of myself and my wife just having you know, the platform to be able to shine a light in that space is key and important. We, we, we look at small farmers as slightly unrelated to us somewhere in the Sahara, but that food chain and food supply are all linked to all of us. And the effect is, is not apparent now, but it will be massively. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. There is 
climate proofing. And, and I guess, you know, what we wanted to do is help just amplify the messaging. And when you look at how these food systems are being destroyed by climate change, when these farmers are probably the, the least contributors to the climate change mm. problem, but are yet being affected the most. And then we're then asking for this demand, which we saw go up with the pandemic, but has always been almost an unreal demand. I mean, food waste is no secret issue in, in the West and in the North. So, uh, I mean, just being with an organization that has all of that in mind has just been, it, it's been an experience. We talked to farmers in Sierra Leone when we had a trip there. And if you want to see the effects of climate change, I mean, talk to a farmer there. It's easy enough to ignore it when we're, you know, in London at home and you, maybe you have a hotter summer and you're enjoying it. But when you're a small time farmer in Sierra Leone worrying about your crops, it's a completely different thing. You've got climate change. OK, that's one thing. That's an environmental issue. But you can climate proof people's livelihoods. You can when the rain comes, you and I put up an umbrella. It's a similar sort of ideology when it comes to looking at how some um, rural farmers can get help. And climate proofing is expensive. So when someone gives us a tenner, that tenner, most of that money goes to figuring out a way to climate proof. So you've got a road, a road that takes the crops from one end to the other. When it rains, that road has disappeared. Who's going to fix the road? That's how the money is distributed. And it goes along. So that that £10 doesn't just go to a farmer to feed a family of seven. It goes to a big cycle, which includes, you know, finding ways to have seeds that that perform in a, a low rain season, to finding irrigation systems that, you know, can perform on less water, to finding market solutions for farmers that have surplus, to finding ways to store surplus, or it all goes bad. So it's really interesting that, you know, it, before IFAD, I didn't know any of this. I didn't understand the supply chain. I didn't understand mm. how this actually failed. So I realized that my £10, it doesn't just help one farmer. It helps an entire chain. And figuring, you know, amplifying that is really why we, we stood up and why Sierra Leone um, was a good place to visit. Do you think that part of the solution to even out the playing field is that we in the global north look at how much we eat and what we eat. So in other words, do you think we should be looking to more of a plant-based, a diversity of vegetables, that kind of diet, to give the planet a helping hand? Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a no-brainer. I think, you know, farm to table and and all those trends shouldn't just be trends. These should be really, you know, we should really consider these, these fads as serious ways of living because they are more sustainable. And we know that. And humans have lived forever how long on farming and agriculture and and buying from your local grocer and your local farms and look by the way having covid and and then coming on the out of the other side of that one of the uh, effects of is your immune system will always forever be compromised now that that's a summary of various reports that i've heard but you know your immune system is certainly you know always going to be suppressed when um your diet is unbalanced and you know i think there is a real uh, interesting statistic that is yet to be found between the correlation of who suffered the most with covid and the spread of it 
mm. and what their diets were suggesting or doing to their immune system at the time. Thank you to UN Goodwill Ambassadors Idris and Sabrina Elba. You can listen to the full interview on What Planet Are We On? Episode 2, live now at bbc.co.uk forward slash sounds. In partnership with IFAD, the Climate Policy Initiative released a new report in November examining the climate finance gap for small-scale agriculture. The release coincided with the Financing Common Summit, where representatives of the world's 450 public development banks met for the first time to discuss how to reorient financial flows to support global climate and development targets. Small-scale farmers are central to our food systems and to achieving sustainable development goals, but they are extremely vulnerable to the impacts of climate change and in many cases are already being affected. Freddie Harvey-Williams has this report. Earlier this month, we welcomed the release of a new report produced by the Climate Policy Initiative in partnership with IFAD, entitled Examining the Climate Finance Gap for Small-Scale Agriculture. The report revealed that only 1.7% of global climate finance, a fraction of what is needed, is targeted at small-scale farmers in developing countries. Despite their disproportionate vulnerability to the impacts of climate change, only around 10 billion US dollars a year out of an annual average total of $579 billion was targeted to small-scale farmers in 2017 and 2018. Small-scale farmers currently produce more than 50% of the world's food calories. However, higher temperatures, together with increased incidences of drought and flooding, destroy crops and livestock and make it difficult for them to continue to feed their communities and earn a living. While there is no specific estimate for climate finance needs of small-scale producers, the report indicates the figure is likely in the hundreds of billions. IFAD is the only multilateral development organisation focused on eradicating hunger and poverty by investing in poor rural people who rely mostly on agriculture. Next year it will launch ASAP Plus, a climate financing mechanism envisioned to be the largest fund dedicated to channeling climate finance to small-scale producers to help them adapt to climate change and combat hunger and malnutrition. ASAP Plus builds on IFAD's Adaptation for Smallholder Agriculture Programme, the largest global climate adaptation programme for smallholder farmers, which has already channeled more than $300 million to more than 5 million farmers in 41 countries, but a greater global effort is required. For the full report, follow the link in the description of this podcast at ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Thanks to Freddie for that report. A link to the full report which details current barriers to channeling climate finance to small-scale producers and future recommendations to overcome these barriers can be found in the description of this podcast at ifad.org forward slash podcasts. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Farms Food Future. Thanks to our producer Francesco Manetti, our reporter Freddie Harvey-Williams and everyone else who's worked on this programme. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.efad.org forward slash podcasts. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and issues discussed and who you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcast at efad.org. Send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. 
And also don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back next year with more news fresh from the farm. Tune into Farms Food Future next month to get off to a great start in the new year. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Until then, from me, Rosa Gonzalez-Goring, your guest presenter for this month and the team here at EFAD, thanks for listening.